is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. It's Monday when we're recording. Uh, welcome back to Homestead Education. It's Mandy and Angela. Hi. Hello, hello. <laughs> Um, it's holiday week here. So, um, we thought, you know, everybody's probably really busy getting, getting last minute Christmas or, um, if you celebrate or just the holidays in general and baking and traveling. So we're going to do a fun episode today, um, which actually will be, I think very helpful as well. (laughs) Um, it's all about homestead myths. Um, and kind yeah. of de- and kind of debunking those maybe a little bit. There's definitely going to be some education I think that comes into play here. Don't worry for those of you that love our sort of how to more um, technical episodes. Those will be back. But um, this is just something where we can all learn and also maybe have a little bit of a chuckle. Definitely, I think there's going to be a lot of chuckling, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 learning opportunities too because you know I was talking about this this morning. Um, we are on social media. We are preparing here in Missouri for this happens every couple of years or so, but some very brutal weather, and um, it's all about perspective, right? So middle of the United States, we get all four seasons. That's why we love it so much. Um, we don't typically get the weather that we are going to be receiving here in a couple of days. So what we think is like terrible, terrible, oh my gosh, like brace for impact. People in Canada are like, this is our normal. Um, And where I'm going with this is, so when we get these extremes, when we have all these different things, um, it's people who are new to homesteading or, um, you know, raising, whatever it is, raising animals, anything of the, the, the lifestyle, you know, any walk of life in regard to homesteading, it's much easier if we can just bounce ideas off of each other. Some people have been through all the crap. Some people have, haven't been through any of the crap. Um, and there are a lot of things that circulate that, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> are myths. Totally. Or not just like not necessary. Okay. So like some of them. Yeah. I mean, some of them are definitely beginner error or some of them are things that maybe we just haven't experienced. I think where it goes beyond um, chuckling for me into just like sheer annoyance (laughs) is when people try to tell me how to do things on my farm and they have no idea about my growing zone. And so I'm going to lead with our first one here, our first myth, which is any time that I post about tapping trees now, which started in early December, because I'm in central New Jersey, growing zone seven, I always get so much backlash about how you can't tap trees right now. You tap trees in the spring. You know, you need to wait till end of February to March. Friends, no, 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 no. Just because Vermont, which, yes, is like the capital of maple syrup tapping in the United States. I get it. But just because they tap in the spring doesn't mean I do. If I wait till spring 
I am not going to get any maple syrup. I'm not going to get any sap because that's not where I live. Just like any other plant you harvest differently, it goes the same for maple syrup. That one drives me crazy. And I think the reason it drives me crazy is because I get it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also just in that um, example is very good one. I know we've talked about it before and it's important to remember where everybody's located and um, I don't know, just uh, that our capabilities are different, our zones are different, our setups are different. Um and not one is necessarily right versus the other unless it's unless we're talking about things like this the the temperature and you can't alter the temperature to be different in february which is when people traditionally think that you should be tapping a tree mm-hmm. um yeah so that's now if i tapped in the summer you can go ahead and tell me i'm wrong <laughs> because that would be incorrect but when we are looking for temperature fluctuations you tap a tree i think we've got an episode about that maybe in season 1 mm-hmm. um you know, you want temperatures to be below freezing at night and by day they need to be above freezing. For me, that's right now. You know when that is because as homesteaders or farmers, we look at the forecast, right? And so when you see that stretch that it's happening more than once, it's like consistent. That's when you know to tap a tree. It doesn't matter where you are in the United States. If your temperature is below freezing at night, above freezing by daytime, go tap. Who cares what Vermont is doing? I've said my piece. Perfect. Okay. You ready for the next one? I'm ready. Oh, we've got a lot. Okay. Um, Mandy, you are a master gardener. Mm-hmm. You know my feelings on this. I'm not shy, but I'm going to let you give a more educated explanation. The myth is, true or false, hay is good for mulching. Um, well, I'm going to just say no <laughs> as like a, a blanket, uh, really quick answer. Um, so I think the, the first, the confusion, a lot of times comes in hay and straw are, um, mixed up a lot. Right. Um, and sometimes people will, um, in different situations use hay for bedding or, um, you know, hay that falls from your animals that wasted or whatever. And then that kind of becomes bedding because it's kind of the same thing as straw. Straw is different obviously in the way that it's grown and harvested and it has, you know, it's uh, like hollow. And so it's more insulated and things like that. So that right there tells you the difference in like structure of the actual plant. Um, but the main thing about using hay in your garden for mulch is hay has seeds in it. And, um, there, gosh, there, there are some people and there are certain ways that I think you can maybe get around it. I would just say, avoid it. There are way, there are so many other things that you can do for mulch. So hay is not a good mulch for your garden. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Just don't do it. Um, when it warms up, when you, if you put it in your garden right, right now, you have a bunch of soiled hay or, you know, maybe it's not soiled, but it's just dropped, um, in your barn and you put it over whatever you're planting right now or in the spring when it warms up those seeds that are in the hay because that's just what it is that's the the actual plant structure they are going to grow and you're going to you're going to get a lot of weeds um I don't know I've never done any of the methods that people say about like composting it or heating it to a certain degree and then using it um I think there are easier ways and so we're just going to go ahead and say hay is a bad mulch for your garden I agree 
Okay. Okay. Um, okay. I've got one about beekeepers. Mm. Um, so, okay. I had um, come across something that said that they could never be a beekeeper because they can't stomach the idea of killing queens, pinching. There's this concept of pinching queens so that um, my understanding is the natural reproductive cycle is that bees swarm and they will only swarm if they have a new queen. Um, so the idea is if you, by pinching the queens, you can reduce swarming. By pinching? So swarming. Yeah, like grab the queen and like outright just like pinch it. So here's the thing. I've been a beekeeper for a long time now. I have never once pinched a queen. You don't have to do that. Just like anything else in homesteading, you can choose to interact and handle and or process anything um, or not. So I do not pinch my queens. I actually don't know any beekeepers that do. Instead, what a lot of beekeepers do is when it comes to springtime and the population in the hive is starting to get a little bit intense and maybe it's getting crowded and, and you'd rather um, not have a swarm, you can split your hives into more than one and you can just do that before they swarm and you can take that new queen cell that new um egg that's being reared for a queen and just put it in a new hive with some drones and some workers males and females and they'll create a new hive without the swarming without queen pinching that's how i do it you don't have to be a bee killer that's that's what i read bee killer oh and I think we have an episode on beekeeping where we kind of, you went over a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, for, for people that are listening and they're, you're like, what's a drone and a worker and a... Yeah. You should go back it's and listen just... to it. It's actually really, really uh, informative. We're not beekeepers here. We will, I think, I would love to, but we, we're going to wait until we, we leave because this is not our forever place. And so um, we'll get set up hopefully in a couple of years, but um, okay. That's smart. Yeah. You ready for one, Mandy? I'm this ready. is all you. Okay. <clears throat> Goats eat everything. Goats don't eat everything. I'm talking so close to my microphone. They're actually extremely picky eaters. So, like, I don't know. I don't know where this came from. Disney? <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like, maybe? I don't know. All of the I, – I don't know. Or, like, the people that, like – I don't – Okay. So is it true that it, they like will nibble, nibble on your clothes or, um, you know, yank at your jacket or like your hair or something like that? Sure. But you know who else says that? Cows, horses. Well, I mean, we have a cat that eats your hair. So, I mean, <laughs> it's not just goats. It, I think, um, you know, people have the idea of them um, like – eating a tin can and being able to stomach it, that is like so false. If they ate a tin can, you would be in a world of hurt uh, or that goat would at least. They cannot digest those things. Um, we actually found, and I think a lot of people would probably agree, um, they're very picky eaters. So they don't, they browse, they don't graze when it comes to pastures and things like that. So they will they will seek out things that they actually want in your pasture. They're not just going to eat the grass. So that's first and foremost. If you switch grain or anything like that, we've had um, to switch like uh, a, f a couple of years ago when our mill um, had some shortages. 
um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and I think 80% of the goats refused to eat the new grain. Right. So it just says all around goats don't eat everything. They don't even eat grass. Right. They don't even eat grass. So I would say that goats are actually some of the pickiest eaters that we house here. Uh, I mean, uh, they don't like a lot of treats. Um, we have some goats that will like eat bananas when we try to give our copper boluses. Some don't. So that's a huge myth. Goats do not eat everything. We don't have a goat episode, do we? I don't think so. Okay. That's on the to-do list for this season then. Yeah. When we come back after the new year, we can do some good, um, that can be a, a really good educational. Yeah. We'll, we'll do a, maybe a goat and maybe a sheep episode. Absolutely. Okay. Noted. Okay. Um, here's the myth. When storing root crops, potatoes and onions cannot be anywhere near each other. This is such a good one. You want to, you want to start? Well, the first thing that even comes to my mind is I think Casey's mom, we have this old, I don't know, maybe grandma. We have this very old, um, wooden kind of drawer type box thing. And it has like a pullout drawer and then like a, like a lever drawer and then one underneath. And it literally says taters and onions on it. Okay, meaning you put your potatoes in one and you put your onions in the other. Oh, okay. I just love when Mandy gets spicy. Okay, here's here's um what led me to this one. I have a, you know, the company Gardener Supply. They yeah. sell a lot of garden products and they also sell like a lot of harvesting materials and storage equipment. And I have this orchard rack and I actually had bought it originally for storing and curing cold process soap because it's their racks, right? So there's a lot of airflow and I think there's like nine racks or there's also a six rack op option. Either way, I decided no longer to use it for the soap. And I thought, well, I'll use it for what it's meant for. I'm going to use it to store some root crops. And so I have my apples on one tier and then I left a few racks of space. And so there's like a foot between that and the potatoes. And then a couple racks down, I have the onions and that sort of thing. It's a lot of concern, a lot of well-intentioned concern about my um my crops there because of the gases they release as a part of a naturally occurring process of post picking they release these gases they continue to ripen and these gases will interact with one another and cause premature aging and rotting well i have not really found that to be true i know that in theory you're not supposed to like throw a bunch of onions and potatoes in the same storage bin together but friends, how if they, they can be in the same pantry, they can be in the same kitchen counter, they can be in the same room. How would how would people have these crops if they couldn't keep them together? Nobody goes to the grocery store every time they're planning a meal to buy one onion and one potato as needed because they can't store them in the house together. It's fine. Uh, I think that, yeah, I think the concern is... Uh, like you said, that people think that they're going to, the potatoes, not the onions, like the onions are the ones that are going to emit that gas. So it's, the concern is that it's going to spoil 
potatoes sooner. I've also <laughs> never had that. I mean, I've never, I've never known that to be a, a huge concern. The thing is, what I always thought was really interesting about this is that if you harvest onions, they should be cured and dried. And if you harvest, let's say a year's worth of potatoes, they should still have their dirt coating on them. They, they're not going to be muddy. They're not going to be wet, but you've cured them also. And then in addition to that, when you are ideally storing a year's worth of potatoes, you're not just throwing them around all willy-nilly. You'll put them on a rack. You'll cover them. You put them in burlap sacks. You keep them in dirt. There are different methods that also provide a layer or a barrier of protection in addition to the fact that the skin is already cured and they already have dirt on it. So again, we're not saying go ahead and just throw them all together in a barrel, but it's it's not it's not a big deal. It's just not that big of a deal. I think you're going to hit hit it on the head there with the fact that when we pull our onions mm-hmm. and our potatoes, like you're curing them, you're curing them, like the, the onions are being cured and then your potatoes have that, you're not typically washing them um, or you're right. doing like maybe a quick rinse, you know, I've, well, we've harvested like sweet potatoes before, um, which would be a little bit different, but um, like, and it was very muddy. And so we would kind of hose them off, but you're not scrubbing them. You're not actually like wiping them clean. You're doing that when you eat them. So, but the key is to cure your onions, which you are anyway, because even if you did, if you didn't properly cure your onions, then they would also spoil. They would spoil before they had a chance to spoil the potatoes. Right. They're going to spoil regardless. Right. The only thing that is, I think, absolutely true and worth watching out for when you're storing anything, apples, onion, carrots, potatoes, whatever, you got to pick out the bad ones. If you see a bad one and you're going to grab like a potato or an apple or something to use in cooking and you see that there's a rotten or overly bruised or moldy one there, don't just leave it and be like, I'll come get it later. Get it now because one bad apple, there's a reason they say that it really does ruin the whole bunch. It sure does. Okay. Thank you for confirming that and validating (laughs) my sentence. (laughs) Okay, Mandy. Mandy um, has bred livestock guardian dogs. I have one of the offspring, and so I'm going to let her take this one. Mandy, talk to us about why donkeys are not the same as livestock guardian dogs. Um, Well, I mean, first and foremost, when we look at species of animals, you have probably heard... um, the flat flight or fight or fight or flight response. Um, also there are prey animals and then there are animals who prey. So a donkey is a prey animal. So they are sought after, um, as prey. Now, typically they're large enough to where, you know, most of us or a lot of us with the predators that we deal with, you know, I would say even like a pack of coyotes, unless they were super desperate or if the donkey was like, you know, injured or by itself, a lot of, I say, but you know, somebody's going to be like, no, you're wrong. A coyote attacked my donkey. But um, typically in most situations, uh, animals, animals who prey on other animals, if they're smaller than their prey, a lot of times they are not going to, they're not going to seek that out because they want something that they are going to be able to kill and eat, right? So um, something that's smaller than a donkey, 
you're you're probably not going to have any issues. What, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that donkey's not going to be able to defend itself. So a lot of, <laughs> um, I don't know if you follow us on social media, but we have a donkey. His name is Don Julio, and he would legit roll over and die if something tried to attack him. <laughs> Um, he's the sweetest thing ever. He doesn't know a stranger. He doesn't know anything. He's not scared of people. He's not scared of stray dogs. I mean, he's very, very curious, which most donkeys are. Um, most donkeys are very personable, uh, especially if they're human raised. So um, the difference is you have a dog who is instinctually bred to protect other animals, right? Donkeys are not instinctually bred to protect anything. The only the only reason in my very strong opinion that people say that they can keep a donkey as a um livestock guardian is because they're under the assumption that the the prey animals are not going to attack their livestock because the donkey is larger than the than the prey. Um so that's a risk that I think A is unfortunate to the donkey because you are putting that animal in a position that it should never be put in um, because they are not bred instinctually to protect anything. They're likely going to run with your livestock uh, and probably going to be faster than your livestock. So your livestock's probably still going to be in trouble. Uh, I mean, donkeys are loud and things like that. Their presence alone is not enough to protect your livestock. being that they are bigger um, than a lot of prey that we deal with. Okay. So as someone who doesn't have a donkey, I'm going to ask you a question. One thing I hear about a lot with regards to keeping donkeys and or llamas for sort of these protective guardians is the fact that when um, threatened, they kick. And so if a coyote would come near them, they would kick. And so this causes a lot of issues just in day-to-day life with people keeping dogs and donkeys together. Because I've heard a lot of people say that their dogs or their llamas or whatever don't like dogs instinctually. They want to kick them. They think it's a predator. So would it be fair to say that while, yes, their kicking is a good defense mechanism because they just kind of associate anything that looks like a dog or a wolf or coyote with being hunted. Would it be safe to say that, yeah, they might be able to defend against one or maybe even two coyotes, but we all know coyotes travel in packs as do mountain lion, that sort of thing. They aren't going to be able to survive as well as a livestock guardian dog. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I would even go further to say that they wouldn't defend period. They won't defend. I mean, I I know that there are stories of donkeys or mules um, that have. I think that those are rare. Um, they're they're kind of like you know the one off situations. Um, yeah, they do kick. Uh, our donkey gets along great with our dogs. Um, more or less, they're just kind of like ornery animals. So I don't, uh, you know, they, they, or Don has like chased some of our baby goats before. And that's why we keep them separate during kidding season. I see that behavior as playful. I don't see it as aggressive or mean. I don't think that that is, is what's happening. Um, so there's a huge difference when you look at something that you're trying to put out in a field 
um, to protect something. I think that at the end of the day, yes, you could be correct that they might kick something. I think that from the very beginning, they should never be put in that position to have to. Mm -hmm. They could. I would think, yeah. But I would think it would be even more, I don't want to say, I don't want to say unethical at all. I don't think that's the right word. I want to say maybe it's more questionable, especially with miniature donkeys. Mm -hmm. Like at least have it be a large donkey. If This is a belief that you feel strongly about that the donkey should be a guardian. Yours is a standard donkey, right? You don't have a miniature. He's mini. He is? Yeah. I mean, like, I think Casey and I could probably pick him up together. I mean, he's probably, well, (laughs) I just made myself sound really strong, (laughs) which I'm not. But yeah, he's not big. I mean, he his withers hit. I'm five foot nine. I'll, I'll have to go see. He's not much taller than my like rib cage. Really? Yeah, he's tiny. I mean, if I did a little hop, I could get on his back like very easily. I did not realize that he was. Yeah, that he's. Tall. Yeah, he's a mini. Um. So I think you know. I I think that this is pretty controversial um, in the homesteading community. I think some people don't have the ability to keep a livestock guardian dog or they don't want to or, you know, whatever. They require different things, right? Donkeys don't require as much as a livestock guardian dog does. Um, uh, But so I I don't want to get into, you know, a corner. I'm not trying to like back myself into a corner saying that if you can't have a dog, you shouldn't have a donkey. Um, But that makes me feel kind of like queasy my stomach even saying that because I totally understand the, I choose to believe that I think people choose to have a donkey or a llama or something like that versus a livestock guardian dog for maybe they can't keep a dog. And I get that. and I would say kudos to those people to not just getting a dog because it's a huge responsibility. Um, any animal is, but maybe they're choosing um, to have a donkey as just like a larger animal in the pasture. Um, yeah. Well, I think for me, when mm, maybe it's me just being like the natural girl permaculturist here, but to me, it just totally makes sense that you wouldn't want a prey animal to be your defender. That just doesn't really that just doesn't really jive well for me. And again, I have no experience with donkeys. Um, It is something that we constantly see though. For me, I would think that the dog is a natural aggressor. You would want that as your protector. Yeah. I mean, I would make, and we can move on, but yeah, because this, I would even go as far as saying that if you don't have the ability to have a livestock guardian dog, then I wouldn't even, I would not replace that. They're not the same. I, w- I wouldn't replace it with a donkey. So if you have a, if you just example, if you have goats and you have a couple of acres or whatever, and you, everybody deals with predators, right? You just different, different mm-hmm. people deal with different things. I think that I feel pretty comfortable saying that I would feel that it might be a little bit irresponsible to get a donkey for the sole purpose of wanting it to protect your goats. I would just say. Maybe choose other things like locking your goats up at night if you know that there are predators during certain seasons um, or something like that. Because you are knowingly uh, choosing to care for another animal that is prey as well. It's interesting. I mean, 
I think about it, um, you know, we, we, you know, a lot of conversation when you talk with people and you try and like think about things on a human level, I'm trying to think about it like actually on the animals level. Um, and you are asking the animal to do something that it is not, uh, bred or largely capable of doing. So I think that's unfair. And we, as the human, the caretaker, the homesteader, the farmer, the rancher, you're the one that makes that decision to bring the donkey in. Um, and to me, that feels irresponsible. Yeah, but I get it. Different walks for different folks or whatever the saying is. <laughs> different strokes for different folks. But different strokes for, Maybe we need to do a podcast episode on it to give it more airtime because I think there's a lot of good discussion here. Yeah. Okay, another episode added to the list. Okay. Here's one. I'll take on a controversial topic. Mandy, we'll, we'll get you out of the hot seat for a second. Um, people thinking that shearing sheep is animal cruelty. And I think, well, I know because I did a lot of research on this, where the origination of this association with animal cruelty came from. There's this practice called mulesing. And this once upon a time was widely practiced around the world. But what happened or what happens when they perform this procedure is usually it was conducted kind of at the same time of shearing, if not done at lambing. Okay, so they would wait till the first shearing of the sheep. And what they would do is they would remove not only the wool, but actually sections of the skin from the hind quarters around the rump of the sheep in an effort to prevent fly strike. Fly strike is a really nasty, heinous condition where flies burrow down, not just into the wool, but into the skin and they chew away at the skin and they lay larvae in there. And what ends up happening is it creates this horrible infestation and infection. Obviously, really, really painful and disgusting. So is mulesing. And so um, this was a way they thought it was in the best interest of the sheep to prevent this fly strike. Just go ahead and not just remove the wool, but remove the skin so it would scar over and create a tough, calloused texture. Mandy, you doing okay? I I don't think I knew this. Yeah, mulesing. So this is obviously not a pleasant experience for the sheep to go through. The whole procedure is painful. Um, it takes a long time to heal and scar over, and it was banned from many countries. The thing is, is it's still practiced, I believe, in Australia. And if I am misspeaking, I apologize, Australia. Maybe it's New Zealand. I'm going to pop this up real quick. But the point is, um, mulesing is not part of shearing, okay? Um, it is totally separate from, and it is actually necessary to shear a sheep. A sheep has to be sheared because their wool continues to grow for the entire course of the sheep's life. So it's not like if you just don't shear it, it's just going to stay some stagnant length. If you don't shear the sheep, it's going to continue to grow. It's going to get matted. But what's really painful is these mats of clotted, you know, debris and, and mud they form these really tight impactions against the skin and that causes bruising, bleeding. It's horrible and even restricts movement. And I did just check. It is Australia. So I did speak correctly. Currently it's only practiced in Australia. 
So um, that is why it's been banned. It's because it's just very, very painful. Shearing a sheep has nothing to do with mulesing, other than the fact that at some point it may have been practiced in conjunction with in some countries. Shearing is totally necessary. If you want to look up the sheep that got away from its shepherd, from its farm, and was lost for years and didn't get a shearing as a result, you can see how awful it looked when they finally found it. And they did have to sedate it to put it, um, to you know, under anesthesia, temporary sleep, not euthanize, temporary sleep in order to shear it because it was so matted and painful and uncomfortable. Um, So they do need that. Shearing is, is it, I would say, I would go as far as to say it would be irresponsible and unethical to not shear your sheep. You have to shear them. I'd agree. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of just the same thing as you know, like grooming your dogs or trimming your horse's hoofs. I mean, they're living parts of the body. Those hair follicles, it's just like our hair it kind of keeps growing. It's like our fingernails. You've seen those nasty things on Guinness Book of World Records. Is that even a thing anymore? Guinness Book of World Records? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But like the people that have like really long fingernails that never, ever, ever, ever cut them and they like stay coil. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just, anyway, it keeps growing. So I would agree with you. It is very necessary. It's part of husbandry and uh, yeah. yeah. But if, if you're concerned about the whole mules thing, thing um, there's a company called Smart Wool. That's where I get all my socks and sweaters and anything that's wool related. They go through a fine tuned process of ensuring that any wool that is sourced doesn't come from Australia or is certified mulesing free. So if that's if that's something you want to research more on, I encourage you to do so. Okay, let's move on. Um, let's go back to gardening. You can't grow anything. No food can be grown in the cold seasons. That's a myth. There's cold season crops. There's plants that actually prefer to be cold and they taste better for it. Um, maybe well, in the dead of winter in like zone two, three, four, even outside that. Yeah, that could be difficult, but there's like season extenders. You want to mm-hmm. elaborate? Well, I mean, that was, that was, there are methods um, that you can do even when you have very cold weather. Um, we kind of talked about it, I think in some previous episodes, like cold frames and um, people grow things in hoop houses and just greenhouses in general, just your your basic old greenhouse. Uh, People make things out of um, like with your milk jugs and make like a greenhouse or make a, may, you know, make it out of a, like a, people will cut open a bag of soil, um, like cut kind of like a lid off of a soil bag and then sow some lettuce seeds or something like that. And then put a Rubbermaid tub or something of the like over it to create a greenhouse and your lettuce will grow and you'll see people that, you know, pull it off and harvest it when it's, there's snow on the ground. So uh, I think maybe the, I think maybe the myth or the, uh, you know, whatever the, this person or people think is if you live in very cold climates, it's harder to grow food. Um, you might have to work a little bit more, but, or, you know, get creative, but you certainly can. Um, I would argue <laughs> that people that have very, very hot climates it might be harder for them to grow food. And a lot of times that uh, people that have very warm um, weather, uh, it's more typical to experience that for longer periods of time versus like us where we have about a couple, maybe three months where 
we, you know, it's cold. It's kind of like lazy off season, preparation season, whatever you want to call it, where we're not really growing too much in the garden. We have some kale out there. We always say have garlic that's planted and things like that. But, um, we, it's a very short period of time and then we can grow food for like nine months out of the year. So yeah. Yeah. Or at least always just like microgreens in your window still. You can yes. always grow something. Yes. Something. Absolutely. Yes. Um, let's stay in the garden real quick and let's talk about a one myth I see constantly, which is compost is a good source of fertilizer. And I'm not going to say that's not true. What I'm going to say is that's misunderstood. Uh, here's why. Compost in itself is a solid. Plants don't eat solids. Plants take up nutrients and water in liquid form, right? That's what their roots do. They don't, they don't, have, they don't have teeth. They absorb. They absorb water. And so what ends up happening is when you put compost on something, it's the same as a slow release fertilizer. It's going to break down over time and release nutrients in a water soluble form that the plant can then uptake. So when you put compost, solid compost on a plant, let's say in the middle of spring or summer, it's not in a readily available form for the plant to use. It's not an easy fix is what I'm saying. That's going to take some time for it to break down before you're going to see any results for the plant to use it. That's why it would be better to make compost tea because that is all of the nutrients broken down into a readily available form for the plants to use. You liquefied it. Or if you're into um, synthetic fertilizers or um, liquid fertilizers, just make sure that it's something that's in a liquid form for the reasons already stated. Um, what would be better to think of compost as, and again, solid compost is what I'm referring to, is that it is a soil additive and an organic matter additive. You are creating new soil. You're adding new growing material. And what's really, really, really great about compost that I don't think gets touted enough is it's full of microorganisms and beneficial bacteria that do wonders for the roots of the plant so they can better absorb nutrients. So that's really how we should be thinking of compost. Compost in itself, yeah, I mean, there's nutrients in it. It's not really a fertilizer, so to speak. Yeah, they're totally different, which is another reason why we um, do most of our soil amendments in the fall. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of backwards thinking, but then it, I mean, it, cause if you're literally going to just straight up put horse poop or, um, oh, it's snowing here right now. You got some cold weather. Yeah. Um, so if you are going to add manure or whatever, just straight to the garden, which great, that's fine, but not, um, you, you're not going to want to do that when you put your tomato plant in the ground and then add compost like right after you plant it or put compost in the, in the hole. It's likely not, uh, well, like Angela said, that there are no nutrients that are going to be able to be, uh, absorbed or uptake. Um, the plant will not be able to uptake anything right in that current moment. It's likely going to be too hot over in your plant as well. Um, so if you add a lot of amendments in the fall or even just like early spring, um, 
if you, if you, you know, obviously didn't get to it, we're uh, almost to January. So no big deal. It didn't get to it, but maybe you can do it like in February or something and it will give, um, those beds or that spot where you're going to be planting a little bit of time to break that down and actually, um, make it into usable nutrients. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Okay. We have just a few more here. Um, Mandy guardian geese. If you have more than one goose, they won't guard your flock. True. If you have more than one, they won't guard your flock? Yeah. So if you want a guardian goose, you should only get one. Well, uh, well, no. (laughs) Two two things come to mind there. I don't think that that's, again, um, you you, you do do what you want, right, everybody? Uh, My personal opinion is that that's not very fair to that one goose. Um, At least have another one to have like a like animal, like, like species with that animal or with that, you know. Um, But yes, they absolutely will. Geese are loud. It's, it it goes back to, it goes back to animals and how they're bred and their instincts and things like that. And um, a lot of things you cannot remove from those animals. They're instinctual. No matter what you do, they're going to have those instincts. Um, and so, yeah, geese, we have 19, um, geese. And if you watch their behavior, it is wild and so cool. They will, um, if they all like lay down together sometimes, you know, uh, and the chickens or the ducks kind of like will be meandering around them. Um, half or three fourths of the geese will sleep. So they'll like even tuck their heads under their wings. And a few of them will literally stay standing up awake and they watch. It's kind of like your lifestyle guardian dogs. They're not all, we have four. They're not all out all night. Really probably, I mean, I'm not out there at three o'clock in the morning. Um, but, uh, probably only one or two, they, they work in shifts. Um, the other ones will be with the stock. So, yeah, no, you can have more than one goose and they're still gonna, they're still gonna have those instincts. They're still gonna look at the sky. They're still gonna honk and holler when they see something that they, um, don't like. Um, so that could be a falling leaf or that could be, you know, a stray dog, but, um, they're still going to do those things. You know, I'm guilty of even preaching when I first had geese for the first couple of years of saying you shouldn't get more than a couple because I had always been taught that if you had more than just a couple, um, then they would kind of go off and do their own thing and they wouldn't really be around. Not that they wouldn't see the ducks as their flock, but it was more just kind of like, well, they're going to go off. They're going to graze in the pastures by themselves. And then the ducks are going to kind of be left to be unattended. And while I have seen that from time to time, well, I, what I will say is that now I don't have as many as Mandy. I have eight, but, um, their presence alone is really just sort of enough to deter a lot of the smaller predators. They're going to be interested in the, the birds anyway. So yeah, if, if the geese will be in the pasture, right. Cause they like to graze, they'll be eating grass the ducks are going to be somewhere in proximity. It's not really going to be something where something's going to try to attempt anything because they see that the geese are there. And you're not wrong. Ours, ours definitely kind of like group up and they kind of go off on their own sometimes. But, um, I mean, most often it's not like, you know, acres or miles away or anything like that. So they're all kind of within the same proximity. Um, I think it's also noteworthy to say that geese are not a replacement for like a livestock guardian dog. 
um, right. or something like that. So they're not one and the same, but um, they do, you know, alert kind of like guineas sometimes do. Um, it's not like we get these animals and like they're, we get them because we think that they're going to defend and protect and things like that, but they're going to defend and protect in a very loose term, very, very loose term, more than just having like a chicken or, you know, a few chickens together. So, um, yeah. Well, there's an alarm. Yeah. There's an alarm. That's what it it is. The large, you know, they're, they're larger. Um, and then they are alarmist. Totally. Yep. All right. We have four more. One that I want to touch on real quick, let's go back indoors, and it has to do with food preservation. So two quick, and they are myths, um, and it comes to canning. Number one, you cannot can anything. Canning should be looked at more as a science or as a a set of directions that you need to follow if you're going to preserve food over thinking of it as an art, like you might think of cooking, right? When we think of a recipe, we like to substitute, add, remove things that we don't like, and that's all good. But you can't do that with canning. Reason being because it's about pH and it's about making sure that you have acidic enough foods that can be shelf stable. If you don't meet the acidity requirements, your food is more likely to go bad and not just go bad, but like harbor totally terrible bacteria like botulism. And so when it comes to canning tomatoes, you do need to add lemon juice. You do need to follow recipes. Um, Those have been tried and tested and scientifically proven to Mm. not get you sick. So that's not really something you want to mess with. Now, pressure canning, pressure canning takes some of the restriction away. So you can can your own soup recipe. You can mess with uh, maybe flavor levels in tomato sauce or spices. You can do that with pressure canning because you're heating it up to a high enough heat that it's going to kill that stuff and make it impossible for it to come back or grow again. But when it comes to water bath canning specifically, you can't, you, you have to start with a proven recipe and you can't alter it. Sorry. That is true. Sorry. That's why there are different yeah. methods. Um, and you can't like interchange if you're canning meats and things like that. You can't interchange right. that with something that you're doing like with j- jams. I mean, like they're, they're not one and the same. They are not. You got to make sure you follow the directions. Um, and then another myth when it comes to canning is when it comes to storage, some people are under the impression that you have to have to have to remove the rings. If you, if you don't remove the rings, there could be a false seal. Okay. When you are water bath, pressure canning, whatever, and the product is hot and you take it out of the container and you wait to listen to that for that pop, right? You should be doing seal checks. You should be making sure that that lid doesn't pop in and down, up and down anymore. It, it should be tight. It should be sealed. If it's sealed, you, you can, can put, put a ring on it. Yes. Right. But I mean, I don't get it. I just really don't get it. When you take the seal off, like if I want to go use my tomato sauce and I unseal it or I remove the band, I'm not going to be like, oh, I just took the band off and the, the lid's loose. It must be okay. No, no, that doesn't make it sense. Won't be. If, it won't. If, the, yeah. if you take the, the ring off, 
mm-hmm. even if it's been properly sealed and over for whatever reason, over time, that lid has popped. And now you go to remove the ring and you see that it's loose. Don't use it just because it had a band on it. Didn't mean it kept out some sort of bacteria that could have marched its way in there. A seal is a seal. It's either sealed or it's not. Adding a ring after the fact is not going to change whether or not it's food safe. It's about the seal. There. There I'm done. I'm done. Good. No, that's really good advice because it's very common. Okay. Just a couple more, Mandy. Horses need blankets to be outside in the winter. True or false? Definitely false. False. Um, Yeah, no. So uh, a lot of this is circulating right now. Um, we've talked about it. Um, we have stuff on the website, on social media. I know you've talked about it. So, uh, to, without going into like a ton of detail or talking for forever and getting really scientific, um, it, this holds true for most of our animals, but specifically horses, I would say 98% of them, um, or nine out of 10 or whatever, however you want to look at it. I know that math doesn't match up, but, um, as long as the horse is healthy, it's not geriatric, it's not debilitated, you don't body clip the horse or something like that. Now, this is different, right? So the horse has to be able to acclimate. Your animals have to be able to acclimate. If you have a horse that you stall every night and is like really not acclimated to the weather, sure, you might want to potentially look at putting a blanket on it. If for some reason, all of a sudden now their horse is going to be outside during a snowstorm or something like that. But the Signal in daylight decreasing. So just like with a lot of things, like our chicken start stop laying eggs, um, you know, so so many things that will signal the horse or your goat or your cow or a lot of things like that to start growing their winter coat. And so if you blanket them when it starts to get cold, they are not gonna have they're not gonna start growing that winter coat. And then what I mean the I think that the concern is then they're reliant on that. It's much like heat in your chicken coop, right? So it's going to be very cold here this week. Very cold. We're talking negative 10, wind chills negative 40, which is very cold for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're preparing for. And a lot of the Midwest is getting that this week. Um, And so there is a lot of concern for animals right now. Um, And we will not blanket Zazu or Dawn. Now we have them here just in like the off chance we needed it. I've never used one. Um, but they don't need it if they are allowed to acclimate. Um, I, it is more detrimental to the animal's overall health if you don't let them acclimate and you constantly are making it so that you think that they're comfortable, right? Their bodies are going to... They pick up solar heat from the sun. Um, it's kind of like that old saying, you know, people, I'm remembering a time, uh, I, I don't actually think my sister listens to these podcasts, so um, <laughs> I can talk about her, but we were driving, she was in college, so this was many years ago, and we drove, I don't remember where we were, but in a snowstorm, um, coming home or something like that, and there were a bunch of cattle in the field, and they were just covered in snow. And she started crying, like sobbing, because she felt really bad for the cows. I think that's pretty common, um, actually, uh, thought or feeling for a lot of folks. 
Um, but if they actually have the snow on them, same with your horse and things like that, they're warm. It's called, it's like insulation. It's like insulation for our gardens and things like that. Snow, actually a blanket of snow on their backs um, is good. It's when you see the snow getting there and it starts to melt and then they're left wet. That's not good. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to contribute is that if you were to pull, like run your hands, which is such a lovely feeling through a warm uh, horse's winter coat, Mm -hmm. it's warm underneath. Yes. And you can see the texture of the hair is different. If you look at one strand of hair Um, underneath, it's meant to like, it's like an undercoat. It keeps them dry and it keeps them warm. It's like truly honestly is insulation. And then if you look at the top strand of the hair, the piece of hair, um, it's like oily and it wicks water. It's waterproof. So when you see snow on the animal, it means that their winter coat is working. Mm-hmm. When the snow is hitting them and if it's melting, that means something is wrong. Either they're sick, they have a temperature, or something is defective about their coat. And that is when the animal is prone to hypothermia um, and really has an issue and, and needs medical attention is when the snow is not melting or is melting. When the snow is melting, they're sick. Yeah. And a lot of times, and we'll see it too in like geriatric animals or animals that are just older and their bodies just are, you know, they're just old. And so it's as much like with um, elderly humans, uh, they just can't, it's just like a body regulation. They don't, you know, regulate their temperature as well. Um, Same with like babies, right? So, um, but largely they do not need blankets. Um, And I really truthfully do believe that if they're blanketed all the time, then it does more of a disservice than just like this goes back to me and I've evolved very much over the years of homesteading. Trust me. I, um, have, I feel like I'm pretty confident in saying like learned a lot and, um, pivoted and things like that. I also deal with anxiety. So when I first started doing things like this, I was anxious all the time and making sure that like the animals were good and, um, And then I just kind of had to take a deep breath and remember all of my education and just like actually remember what it is like now owning animals versus what it was like many years ago. And um, we as humans uh, uh, like insert ourselves sometimes too much um, in taking care of these animals um, and disrupt their natural practices as a whole. Um, well, there's designer animals that are not equipped with nature's safeguards in place. For the most part, horses and livestock, they come equipped with nature's design to keep them healthy and warm. It's when we've created a lot of these sort of quote unquote designer animals that we've maybe stripped them of some of their natural safeguards and that's where I think maybe some of the concerns come to, comes into play because then they start saying, oh, wait, well, this particular breed needs this human intervention now, right? Because we've created that as opposed to what doesn't need human intervention because nature created that. Yep. All to say, I mean, I think we both understand the, you know, uh, pressure and anxiety sometimes that comes with these like temperature extremes and um, just having animals in general. Um, but. 90, a lot of percent of horses don't need a blanket. Same for your donkeys. I mean, they're a little bit different in regards to their hair coat. Um, They won't wick away the moisture as well as a horse would, but they, um, 
they if they have a dry shelter, then they're good to go. As long as it's dry and they're they're allowed to stay out of the elements, um, you shouldn't need to blanket them either. You know what else you shouldn't need? This is my segue into the next one. You don't need a rooster for chickens to lay eggs, and you don't need a drake for hens, female ducks, to lay eggs. No, you don't. But that, no, you don't. <laughs> um, you need them to fertilize eggs, but all the eggs that everybody buys at the grocery store um, are laid by eggs that are, are laid by eggs, are laid by chickens uh, that are just kept in cages. And so they don't actually have any interaction with, I shouldn't say all, a lot of the eggs that you buy in the grocery store are produced by birds that are kept in cages, not just like segregated from a rooster. They don't even keep the roosters on a lot of these commercial farms, but they're not, they don't even have interaction with other pullets or hens. So um, they, the bird doesn't need an interaction with any other animal, just like we as female bodies ovulate and without any assistance. Females are just born with a certain number of eggs that they have. And then they go through the ovulation process of dropping the eggs, human and bird alike. So they have the eggs with or without the male. It's the babies. Yeah. It's also probably, and I, we could probably go on forever, but we should probably wrap it up. I totally understand. But it's the same along the very same line that um, a fertile egg and a non-fertile egg, not one is more nutritious than the other. And you're not actually eating a baby when you eat a fertile egg. A baby chick. A baby chick. Or a baby duck. Or duckling, yeah. Or a goose. Or, yeah. All right. Yep. Last one that I have. Unless, I'm sorry, did you have something else you wanted to add to that one? No. You're good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last one. Um, this is a bee one. Opening the hive in wintertime to feed your bees. You shouldn't do it because you are putting the lives of your bees in danger. That's actually a myth within reason. And here's why. If you are a northern beekeeper, you know that bees cluster in their hive in order to stay warm. Mm -hmm. You know that because this takes place and if it is too cold, they cannot move between the frames, the slots within the hive to access food. Therefore, even if food is available for them within the hive, they can die of starvation because frankly, it was too cold for that cluster to uncluster for a moment to move, to get to the food. So they die in place. One thing that you can do is feed your bees sugar cakes and put that sugar cake right directly on top of them, on top of the frames in the hive, because moving up to get food is so much easier than unclustering, moving over, and reclustering in between another set of frames. If you are going to feed your bees that supplemental sugar cake feed, you have to open the hive. To not do so, actually runs a higher risk of killing off your bees from starvation than opening it for three minutes to ensure to insert a sugar cake and expose them to a little bit of cold air. It's 80 degrees or more inside a functioning beehive. They can withstand a few minutes of you opening the hive to put the sugar cake in there and close it back up. That is a myth. If you are not feeding your bees by choice for the season, That's your choice. But if you're not opening the hive to feed the bees because you think it's going to kill them for you to put a sugar cake in there, that is a myth. Hmm. I learned something I didn't know is that warm inside of a hive. So that's really cool. 
Very cool. Very cool. All from the action of them vibrating their wings. Isn't that amazing? Sense, but yeah. Nature is amazing. Very interesting. Okay. So I think that that was a lot of myths that hopefully we shed some light on. I know we certainly got some topics of conversation out of the deal for some new podcast episode ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that that's the end of our of our <laughs> list of myths for the day. Uh, it was fun. I hope it was helpful. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when we talk about these things, it always kind of brings back to the forefront or brings to light that these, you know, it is still talked about. And um, so, yeah, kind of going through some of those things and at the end of the day, just hopefully making people feel better about what they're doing or what they're not doing. Um, so we hope everybody has a really, really good holiday um, that you eat a lot of cookies or do whatever you do and just maybe relax. And we'll be back in the new year, which, oh my gosh, is just next week. It's, it is so wild. Um, yeah. So thanks for all the support this year and just hope you have a great holiday. Yes. Yes. Cheers to you all safe and happy times. And, um, we will continue season four in 2023. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.